Right, let's get started. Uh, guys, welcome to AOR Live. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Damien Puddle. Damien started training in 2008 after making friends with Barnes, who was arguably New Zealand's first practitioner, who was in the same sport and exercise science degree as him. Damien turned his excitement for parkour towards his studies to make it more practical and hopefully helpful for the parkour community. He helped to found Parkour NZ in 2011 and has been its CEO since 2013. Although still an active practitioner and coach, his research interest shifted from biomechanics to sociology. In 2019, he completed his thesis, Making the Jump, examining the localization of parkour in Aotearoa, New Zealand, apologies for butchering that, at the University of Waikato, an exploration into the implications of parkour's localization. During his thesis studies, he also became involved in the development of Parkour Earth. He took over the CEO role in, is it February 2020 you officially took it? Officially August, but August. in terms of August last year, official handover, but um, kind of... And there we go. Yeah. He now works full-time for Sport Waikato, a regional sports trust. When he's not working, he tries to be a good husband to Nicole, a doting dad to their two daughters, and continues to muddle his way through his Christian faith. Damien, thanks so much for coming on my podcast today. You're welcome. Um, I really like starting these podcasts with a little bit of an autobiography. What are your earliest memories of parkour? My, I was, <clears throat> so I lived in Canada for eight years in Toronto with my family. And my earliest memories, I was into breakdancing at high school um, with some friends. And, um, but I was, when they weren't dancing or at school, they were into drink and drugs and I wasn't so fond of that. And so I was trying to find some other practical outworking or something that I could do. And around the same time that I was internalizing that, um, I saw a, an advertisement on TV um, advertising a phone and it had Chase Armitage um, and Dan Iaboni um, from Toronto uh, in, in the ad and they're running around doing stuff and they end up on different buildings and it's it's a laugh and it's like, oh, get this phone. Blah, blah, blah. And so I was advertising the phone, but I was like, that movement is not breakdancing, but it's physical and it's creative and it's different and it's outdoors, it's practical. What is it? And how can I find out what, you know, and so it wasn't advertising parkour, so it didn't say what the movements were or how you got involved. So it took a while for me to figure out and do some digging online to, as to what it was. Ended up finding out a little bit about it. And this was probably 2007, maybe 2006. Um, but I had no idea how you went and did it. And I remember looking outside the balcony of my apartment thinking and seeing some bollards outside. Do I just go and I, do I jump on them? Um, <laughs> the answer is yes, you just, you do. You literally just do. But I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I just, I left it. Um, but when I moved, um, we moved back to New Zealand. I started that degree in sport and exercise science, as you mentioned. Um, and one of the first guys I made friends with was um, this guy Barnes, um, who he would go back and forth to Sydney and, and train with, before he ever really trained with anyone in New Zealand, he would train with people like um, Sean Wood and, and Anne Anwar um, um, while he was in Australia. Um, and so he took me under his, his, his wing, it took me a couple of months to work up the courage to actually go out and train with him. Um, 
and but yeah that that's how it all started the first place I went training was the University of Waikato where I ended up studying so it feels that probably it feels like my second home is um is the University of Waikato um and yeah it took six eight it took eight years of before I ever really stepped inside any of the buildings so it's actually kind of weird <laughs> going from having spent um from 2008 to 2016 training and climbing all over its buildings and then when I started studying there going inside and getting lost and being confused about where I was because I'd never actually I had never studied there because my my undergraduate studies were at, at a different uh, education provider so that's that's a cool story so yeah as you were talking about you actually you wrote a, a phd on parkour and i have spent the last week reading it um and i think the thing that struck me most as i read it was how different the story of parkour in new zealand is to the story of scotland especially considering that in some ways they're very similar countries um but of course uh, New Zealand, because of its location, interacts with the global phenomenon of parkour very differently. It didn't, in, instead of interacting with the founders and their students, you were interacting with this global phenomenon that was everywhere. Um, so do you maybe want to start talking a little bit about how far-flung communities like your own first interacted with the discipline? Sure. I think some of the early history of New Zealand would be fairly similar to other people's um first um first interactions with it people talking um um not not exactly mine but other practitioners who were in new zealand before i moved back talk about um seeing jump london or jump britain um like other practitioners around the world um some of them even had seen um early uh ripley's believe it or not um yamakazi yeah, um in, interactions and, and other bits and pieces like that um but certainly the the earliest early um practitioners it was it was all from media that they saw um <clears throat> excuse me not from any people actually practicing um the activity there's there was also a number of people who have that experience of um who would describe things as i that they had Oh, now there's a name to what I've been doing for a while. You know, they were going out and climbing and just doing random stuff in the city because that's who they were and how they kind of grew up. Um, and then they realized that there was something that was perhaps a bit more tangible um, and explicit as to what an activity like that um, is. But certainly most of these interactions were online, um, people connecting to the forums. I know, I'm pretty sure Barnes was on the parkour.net um, forums that was before my time but um, yeah and so when I entered the scene in 2008 um, there was already New Zealand had a, a forum um, uh, like other countries and um, people started traveling to each other's cities um, and interacting with each other. And there was a lot of attempt to try and disseminate and understand the information that was available um, um, from the, the early days of parkour history, whatever that people could find on YouTube or, or, or other videos that were shared. But um, yeah, no 
to my knowledge, um, none of those, um, the founders or early practitioners have been to New Zealand um, mm -hmm. and, and not a great deal of, I could probably count on my hand how many people from New Zealand have been to Lease, for example. Um, whereas I'm sure you, um, most people in, uh, you know, would not be able to count how many the practitioners in Europe. <laughs> um, I couldn't have, count the number of practitioners in Edinburgh. Um, mm. So, um, the distinction there is then that instead of having these slightly more personal uh, interactions, so I think everyone probably starts with Jump London or Jump Britain, but for instance, myself mm. and people, most of the people that I know um, quickly got to in, interact with someone, whether it was Sebastian or whether it was Stefan or whether it was um, the, the, the guys who were living and training me at the time. Whereas you guys instead had this process where you were getting it all online, um, which you kind of yeah. you broke down and explored quite a lot in your um, PhD thesis. So what are the different routes you discovered for the dissemination of information on this sort of global scale? And how did you describe them and talk about them? Yeah, so in my, uh, in the main chapter where I talk about that in the thesis, I, I'm using a, a theory of global cultural flows by an anthropologist named um, Arjun Apadurai. Um, and it's looking at, he talks about a bunch of different scapes, essentially the idea of landscapes, but applying that to the movements of, of people, of media, of, of uh, money, uh, and of uh, images and ideologies, etc. And that these different movements create the flows that essentially establish um, the connections and the realities of people's lives. And so particularly, well, all of those things have an influence. So there have mm -hmm. been movements, there have been practitioners from um, overseas that have come to New Zealand and usually that gets lapped up. Oh, tell us what it's, what is it like over, over in, in Europe where it's closer to, um, you know, bigger scenes and, and, and longer histories. Um, but then at the same time, that competes with, say, the mediascape. American television's influence um, in New Zealand is um, fairly palpable. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, so, for example, a couple of uh, indoor training facilities in New Zealand have warped walls, but we don't have we don't have a New Zealand Ninja Warrior, and so it's a, it seems very gimmicky. But it's there's an image there that the developers of the spaces have latched onto because it's something that you know New Zealanders know about even though they've had to either see it in American Ninja Warrior or, or UK or Australia where they where they have it so um, that competes with these other 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 movements um, and yeah because of that um, I guess the lack of the ethnoscape and the movements of, of people being a, a nation that's fairly isolated and Australia is our closest neighbour, um, most of that uh, media influence is essentially what people can find and what interests them. And so um, if, I'm not sure about how quickly other nations have transitioned and things, but, you know, we don't have a forum New Zealand any longer. It's all either on Facebook and a lot of that's shifted to Instagram, um, mm -hmm. which is perhaps similar to other nations, but um, it's pulling from lots of things that are, are current 
um, and interesting from that point of view, rather than necessarily the depth or the history um, of things that some of the older practitioners like myself may still carry a, a deep interest in, but don't actually have that um, close personal connection to. Yeah. So this idea that you you spend a lot of time talking about and you sort of touched on there that the these this global tech technoscape and mediascape I think were the the flow words you used um, has a concrete effect on what's happening locally and you use the the great word global for this effect um, where these big big things that are happening all over the world. Uh, have concrete effects on the local thing. Um, and then this idea of the warped wall. So this is a, a global phenomenon, a thing that you see out there in the real world that has a, it has a tangible impact on local culture. Um, mm -hmm. But if we kind of think a little bit about um, Alex Pavlotsky's work, he talks about how um, parkour is different everywhere and how each place is using parkour in its own way. And but you've now kind of brought in this idea that some things that let's say they don't belong so this idea of the warped wall in new zealand's gym it doesn't belong there there's no purpose for it but it's been brought in by these global ideas so do you did you develop any understanding of why people grab those things and if so is it what are the tangible benefits from pulling from this vast global understanding of parkour rather than what is best for local ideas so yeah, that was a very a, long question. <laughs> yeah, it, that's a, it, it's an interesting question, though. I don't think during the thesis I thought too heavily about actually um, what causes or what's most important in drawing from, from this or that. I was thinking more around the fact that it just it, it literally exists. Um, and... Um, if I can just take one step back, when I, the reason why I ended up choosing to take this approach and looking at it from a global, looking at parkour from a globalization perspective and looking at the global and the local interplay is because I would read, um, I would read the, the parkour literature that I could find. Um, and, and when I was doing my undergraduate research in biomechanics, it was all kind of sociology papers. And I was like, this is rubbish. This is trash. Why do I, this is, none of this is helping. I want to see. I want to see numbers and I want to see stuff about people's bodies and their landings and things like that. When I ended up doing sociology, um, it was perfect because this is exactly, I finally actually read the same stuff that I read then and, and thought how interesting it was. But I remember in particular reading some work by Kidder. Um, so anyone who's read any of the parkour lecture, there's a, he's, he's written a book and he's got a um, couple of pa few papers out there on parkour, uh, particularly from perspective in Chicago. And um, he was talking about it in a way that made it sound like this is way this is the way parkour is, not how he it is. He talks a lot Chicago. about masculinity, isn't he? Yes, he does talk quite a bit about masculinity, yeah. and so and so certainly it, it, it appears that what he I, I can only assume what he's written about is accurate within that context, but it was mm -hmm. seemed very foreign to me perhaps in the same way that you, you saw some of the things about the New Zealand context that seemed foreign to you. And mm -hmm. I was just like, you know, I was talking about inevitably every time they're out training, someone yells, it's shirtless o'clock and they all take off their shirts and train shirtless. Um, and I've seen people train shirtless in New Zealand, but no one's ever done that. There isn't that kind of machismo 
that he was picking up in the communities that he was looking at. And so when I was, I was like, there has to be some kind of, if someone is doing research on parkour, there has to be an understanding that what you see on the ground in the practice is one way, but there's so many things feeding into the way, the why that's the way it is. And there has to be an understanding that there's things that are outside that and different in all these other locations. So what can bring all of those understandings together? Um, and so in returning to the, the root question, I think, I don't think I can answer it in the sense of what is most important, but certainly in the sense that things that become prominent maybe in popular culture beyond that escape, start to escape the reach of the parkour community itself are the things that ended up getting latched onto from that global perspective. Um, so um, things that um, American Ninja Warrior, for example, it's not, you know, parkour people uh, were involved in that, but it itself is, is not parkour, but the general public, it's easier for them to access that thing um, and, and draw from it and see that. And so these people thought, ah, oh, that's something that will help people understand and, and get a, a connection into parkour through this way. Um, I don't know if that's been su successful, but I think that may be part of the intent there. Um, and I mean, things like I talk about the, uh, you know, there's a picture in here I've got of um, John Krasinski um, in, in the office um, sitting there because- um, This is parkour. In, in, yeah, in New Zealand, potentially like many, many other English speaking countries, um, everyone yells, you know, <laughs> parkour at you um, to the point where people yell it at you who haven't actually even seen the office. And then you go, why are you yelling parkour? It's like, oh, because that's what you do, don't you? Don't we all, isn't that what we do? We yell parkour at people who do parkour, um, not even realizing the root of, of where it came from. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think it's those things that escape from the parkour community itself that end up getting latched onto by the wider public um, that in turn influence back on the parkour culture um, and community. Mm -hmm. It, um, everything you've just said makes me want to jump towards uh, your work on the ideas of something and nothing now in terms of um, those things that are getting so maybe actually before we get into this do you want to maybe try and give a bit of a, a, an overview of this spectrum of something and nothing and this globalization and globalization idea in terms of how the word what the words mean sure so so overall in the thesis i my understanding of globalization is essentially is is globalization but it's just a more accurate picture so when you say globalization it 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 kind of immediately points to the to the bigger umbrella large-scale thinking or large-scale processes but that tends to um, ignore or hide the fact that there's so much local interplay that occurs as well, pushback, adoption, adaptation, etc. And so primarily I use the term globalization as a more um, effective term for the word globalization, drawing on um, uh, a guy named Robertson. But there's another theorist, Ritzer, 
who, um, because there's so many different theories of globalization um, and different ways of conceptualizing it, and both were helpful for different purposes. Mm-hmm. And so Ritzer, um, he uses globalization essentially to say, so he uses the same term, but he uses it differently. He says, he kind of says that really nothing is untouched by globalization to the point where anything that you would have previously said is local is no longer local. It has to only be global um, because of the way the world is now with technology and Mm -hmm. everything. So anything that previously would have been local, it doesn't exist anymore. It's only global. And then, so if that's at one end of the spectrum, on the other end, he adds another term called global, where he's really talking about, he's talking about globalization, but he's, he's very specifically talking about the intent of um, corporations, um, government, et cetera, to impose a globalization mandate. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, you have um, this, the spectrum from from local, which is the more um, nuanced and local um, understanding of the world or of experiences versus uh, a a very heavily global um, push of, um, um, you know, make the world McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so I I was going to try and pin that to some ideas. So Local probably means authentic, taken up by local understandings, different everywhere, um, a reflection of the local culture. Global means capitalist. It means the McDonald's in every corner. It means something that is inoffensive to every culture because it doesn't have too much variance to it and therefore spreads very easily. That's it. Very generic. Yeah. So um, So how this is set up? As I said, the, the example I, that using the thesis around something and nothing, which mm-hmm. um, is part of um, Ritz's understanding, is that something is is very global. It's it's tangible. It's rich. It is, um, for example, a a bartering system with shells on a beach, where people are picking up the shells and trading it with each other as some form of currency. It's very specific to the ocean life, to the location where it's found, all those kinds of things, but it is a way of transacting um, um, a form of currency versus at the, at the global and nothing end of the spectrum is a credit card, which has, Mm -hmm. you know, branded is plastic is mass produced. It still enables the transaction to take place and may still be very um, helpful. So something and nothing has a tendency to make you kind of feel like something is good and nothing is bad, um, but he's not assigning those labels because having to find all the shells um, may be very tedious and frustrating, whereas the credit card may be very, very helpful. Um, but yeah, mass-produced, generic, doesn't have a necessarily a great story attached to it um, in this kind mm-hmm. of universal um so one of the things that leads from that is this discussion of parkour um, as it is presently practiced as being an art that is something um, in that it is different wherever you go. This is one of the things that um, we, we, a lot of the academic types talk a lot about with regards to parkour and isn't necessarily visible to the rest of the community, which seems to be that, um, and 
so I was talking about this with uh, Travis from Australia just the other day. He was kind of making the point that how do you describe something when it's different everywhere? It seems people seem to apply their own values to it. They seem to have this this something element to it. Um, whereas um, as we globalize and as we formalize, we end up in this place where we become less of a something and more of a nothing. Mm. Um, is that how you, is that an inevitable process? Is that something which happens an awful lot in other sports? Or is that something where, and is that good or bad? I know we've just talked about that, but what do you, how do you see that? I think with, as something grows, it, it has a, a, an aspect of inevitability um, as, um, and naturally, you know, the creation of indoor spaces, the commercialization of the practice is, a, is an attempt to, you know, while it may be, have all sorts of great uh, intentions attached to it, it also um, tries to make it more palatable to people, you know, makes it easier, like the warped wall. Let's take this, help it kind of create a segue and a transition point for someone who is familiar with that to come into the practice. Um, but one of the things that that does is it makes it more generic. It makes it more um, nothing um, using Ritz's language. Um, I don't, I think it's hard to say that it's, it's bad. Like I think, um, it's very nostalgic to, to and enjoyable to reminisce about how what my training was like you know when I first started and in my say the, the first four years of, of my practice um, versus the experience now which is is um, a, a lot different with the way things have have progressed um, globally and and locally um, but I think the difficulty in attaching good or, or bad to it is hard because of I, I guess drawing on someone who picks up parkour now, is their experience any less valid than someone who started earlier? Mm. It might. Some people might argue it's less authentic um, and, and less something, but um, whether it's less valid or less enjoyable or less rich mm -hmm. in terms of their experience and their um, what they gain from their participation. Um, I really like that description. Um, so a number of the people I've interviewed who've talked about the very first days of parkour, the very early days, um, which for most of the English speaking world is sort of 2003, 2006, um, is that it felt like it was ours. And we can't put into words why that was so special. And I think what's really nice is you've just given us some words for that. It was authentic and it was something and it was local before it was globalized. And there's something we can't get back it's like an entropy problem like now that parkour is global once we, we can't go back to those days of like arguing the on box. the internet yeah arguing on the internet but whether or not flips were parkour just doesn't seem relevant anymore uh and i so maybe if i can just sort of pull us back towards um maybe some more practical discussions because when i tend to think about uh parkour um I am a very classic local actor. I think about um, my local community as being more important than those around me. And I think about parkour as being a vast group of interconnected local communities. Mm -hmm. And different local communities uh, creating, integrating, disseminating information. Um, and when I'm 
discussing things, I'm clearly thinking about what you, what you call the ethnoscape. And potentially, I think about the mediascape and the technoscape as sort of an extension of that. But you've obviously been talking about this very differently, this, this globalization effect where parkour is becoming a little bit more nothing and therefore is this vast behemoth of a thing that is not really a community-led small pocket thing and instead growing. How would you talk to someone like me about this new way of thinking, not new way of thinking, but this, this global beast that parkour is becoming, this behemoth, and how would um, you, how would you communicate with it? How do, how do we communicate with this new kind of parkour? I see you're now referencing your thesis, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, um, class, if you just turn to page 56 in your, in your textbook, <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, th there's a few things. One, I think in terms of communicating, and returning to the, the, the Chicago research example, it wasn't, I wasn't, I never, I didn't, I mean, initially I was kind of annoyed and angry and I was like, how can you say that parkour is this when that isn't the way I've experienced it at all? You don't understand, mm -hmm. you're a bad scientist, you're a bad researcher, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is not the case. Um, but I think the languaging is important. So when we, um, and, or at least our understanding in the background of what we're thinking about when, when we're talking. But if we're saying this is the way parkour is, we, we perhaps actually mean this is the way we're experiencing parkour now um, mm -hmm. in this location or at this time. Um, and so kind of being, being aware of that, you know, um, although my thesis is about the globalization um, of parkour, it's about the, ex the effects and the impact on New Zealand. So I, I, there's a lot of information around the histories and the experience of countries all over the world that I don't actually have access to. So anytime we talk about parkour being this or that, and this is our experience, um, kind of has to be couched in the fact that this may not actually be the experiences of many people um, all around the world. Um, and so on one level, yeah, I think it's that language and that, that knowledge of um, and trying to be aware of people's access and entry into parkour and experience may be very, very different than our own. Um, okay. And um, the other, why I opened up the, the, the thesis is because I, it's like, how do you say what parkour is when you're trying to acknowledge the fact that there are so many competing um parallel sometimes opposing definitions and conceptualizations and experiences um and how do you account for that and some of the um previous work had referred to parkour as a subculture um and 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 that language can be helpful um but a subculture in some of the literature seems to be a lot more tangible as a thing um, you know, if you think of some of the stereotypes, like you might say goth, or the goth subculture or something like that, that seems to be a lot more tangible, I think, in people's minds in terms of what that subculture looks like and, and, and behaves. But the parkour community is very diverse. Um, and mm -hmm. so to call it a subculture seemed to be a little bit um, too pigeonholing. Um, and so the, the diagram and the, the theory that I use here, the, the Venn, um, yeah. diagram there is, um, is is boundary object theory so it's kind of saying that 
all of those things are parkour. There's one big common understanding of parkour that is essentially the body moving in space and overcoming obstacles. Everyone agrees that that, that parkour is that. Um, however, there's a lot more nuanced understandings of and descriptions of what parkour is because of the way that community has been glocalized. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm saying that both the common global understanding of parkour as well as every single local global version of parkour, all of that is parkour. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's I, um, um, my interest in doing that was one, to, to make sure that I was trying to do something that was a bit more nuanced than, than a subcultural view um, of parkour, but also perhaps pitching it to the community to say, hey, is this a way that helps us to embrace um, the diversity of our practice and conceptualize it in a way that might help us talk to each other um, and get along a bit better than sometimes we do. And sometimes we don't. <laughs> um, what interests me about that then is, so if we put it, couch it in terms of where I, where I was before reading your thesis, I was thinking about all the local communities and I wasn't thinking about this global parkour. Um, in fact, I'm still, I think, struggling to conceptualize what it is. I mean, I interact with it. Like it is, it is a, a perception that is larger than any one person. And I'm very interested in how we go about interacting and changing it as individual actors with agency when it is something which seems to be greater than any one community and one person. Yeah, well, I mean, anything that's global uh, at some point has had its root in some kind of local endeavor. Um, one of the um, things that I draw on to start talking about globalization in the thesis is hip hop culture, um, which is, you know, very mainstream and has an older um, um, history than, than um, your modern day um, parkour history. Um, and, but that started in New York. And so it has, a, it has a location where that started before it then spread out and became a larger uh, zeitgeist, I guess, um, uh, and thing that people know about hip hop now and can you know, think about what that looks like um, in addition now to having local versions um, of hip hop culture that um, go, um, you know, follow those molds, but also bring in their own flavor and things like that. Um, you know, you can even think of all the French rap, you know, in lots yeah. of <laughs> early parkour videos, you know, that's drawing on something that came from somewhere totally different. Um, but at some stage it had a local route. So in terms of influencing the global practice, um, I think it, it, it's probably difficult to just have an immediate effect um, unless it's something really, really big that either hits the news or somehow captures people's hearts or minds like, um, like The Office um, for better or worse. But um, each, yeah, all of our actions in a local space have the potential to heavily feed into what the global understanding of the practice is. This is kind of that idea of going viral, isn't it? Within. Yeah, I suppose so. And, and, and then once it's, once that becomes history and no longer current, then it starts 
to uh, become a, a common thread that people start to access as uh, the new norm of what that global thing is. Um, but as you say, that while the global absolutely exists, it's, it's much less tangible than the local. So it's very hard to pin down exactly what is the global. And we, again, we may assume what we think of as globally as what parkour is like is still going to be heavily influenced by our local perception. And so we might mm -hmm. describe that quite differently again. Um, yeah uh, it's it's not a simple process as you say how do you grapple with that <laughs> but you know it's just um, i guess it's just such a huge question to ask and i think you're totally right there's the whole point of something that is global is that individual actors have less of an ability to impact on it but it, it leaves people like us who want to speak to large audiences and have a discussion about what that global parkour is it makes for a very interesting problem to sit with mm. um before we move i kind of want to move us into discussion on parkour earth but before we do um i was really i got caught up in an idea that i think was just a couple of lines in your thesis um but i want i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your experience of social capital and authenticity in parkour why is it do you feel that many practitioners feel a need for the people that lead communities to both move regularly and move well yeah i i think it comes back to that uh, about the language that describes our the the early practitioner experience of authenticity and of of realness and locality and um you know when you those of us that train we we love going out and actually getting our hands dirty and feeling the world in um you know as a you know as a as a coach when someone is hesitant to try something if they're very new um it's like don't even think about it in the moments just go up and put your you know ply your paste your body over that on that wall just go and touch it you know maybe you don't have to lick it but you know experience that and there's something that we gain from um and there's all sorts of things that we gain from from the practice but by feeling it and knowing it we all have this shared experience of oh we know what it's like to to be in the world and be doing these movements and and, and gaining the various benefits of participating and so i think it gets it becomes difficult for us um to understand when someone who hasn't had that experience is wanting to help us um, or wanting to um, are they wanting to help us because they don't actually know what we know um, can that be real um, or should they be involved at all um, and so yeah, the, the piece in the thesis was um, I was kind of I was asking the question um, on as part of my digital ethnography is what do you think parkour is? And, and, and I was purposely trying to stir the pot, but because you say, oh, what, do you, what, is, what is parkour? And people say, well, to me, or I feel like parkour, and I was like, don't try not to use any of that, that language. Can you actually say what it is? Not with what it means to you, just what is it? 
um, and one of the participants said, shouldn't, you know, you're the one doing the thesis, you're the one doing, doing your doctorate, shouldn't you be telling us what it is? Um, and, I, and I had this very academic response and thought I was, you know, being very um, um, sensible in how I was responding. Um, and they basically came back with, you know, um, oh, you know, you're taking things serious, too seriously. And, um, you know, if you were, if you threw down more and we saw more of your videos and things like that, then, you know, um, we might be able to um, engage with what you're saying a lot better. You'd have, as you say, more social capital um, skin in yeah. the game. Um, and yeah, there's always going to be people who have those arguments of let's stop, stop arguing, stop talking about parkour and just go out and do it. Um, and I understand that um, perspective. Um, but yeah, I think we, because of how much value we gain from the practice, we want other people to experience it. And if they're not experiencing it in the same way, um, there's extra hurdles for us to jump over to understand why they want to be part of mm -hmm. this experience and, and, and why they're supporting us or why they are doing what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it, ha it helps to have that perspective. But if you look at pretty much any other activity, you know, business, etc. There's all sorts of people who do wonderful things for the, these activities, for these ventures and things like that, who don't actually do the activity. So um, at some point, um, some people will probably have to get over the fact that um, we're, we're not as special as we think we are. Um, and that you don't actually have to have experienced it in the same way to um, mm -hmm. to want to help. Um, I wonder if there's, because um, for me, when um, obviously when I write the questions, I, I do my best to avoid having too much of a preconception of an answer. But this one, um, I just, I don't, I don't know, but I wonder if it's about the history of inauthentic actors that we've sort of engaged with. So people who haven't fully gotten it or who tried to take advantage of the community in some way. The story of parkour is intrinsically linked up with people like um, Easy uh, and Adam Dunlap and Mark Cooper, these people who've kind of come in from outside and tried to impose. And we've had very negative interactions with these people um, and seeing them as, is it, I, don't, I don't like that argument because it feels very tribal and also like there have been inauthentic actors who are parkour practitioners. Um, but I wonder if it's sort of mixed up in a, a tribalist psyche and link, I, maybe again, I think I'm almost wondering if it's linked to the parkour passport and that implicit trust we have of each other. Mm. I don't know if you have anything to comment on any of that, what I just said, just thinking out loud. Well, certainly there is that immediate, um, there is that immediate level of of trust with someone else who's kind of experienced what you've experienced, and and I don't think that's unique to, to parkour. I think lots of different activities, sporting or otherwise, when people have had that same experience, you naturally feel a kindred spirit with someone who's who's talking, um, the the talk and walking the walk that um, you have. Um, and you know, uh, I purposely sat here because I've got the um, the map behind me, and this map is. Um, Anytime someone from the parkour community stays at our house, 
from somewhere around the world, we scratch off that part of the, the map. Um, and um, you not got the so, UK yet? Uh, not officially, no. Oh. Um, so, um, I mean, we have some practitioners who kind of are, are basically live in New Zealand who are originally from the UK that have stayed. And it's like, oh, I don't know. I think that might be cheating if we did that. Um, <laughs> So we've decided not to scratch it off until it's kind of someone has <laughs> has come in and gone back. But I'll um, add scratching your map to my life goals. One second. <laughs> um, but absolutely, this is immediate of oh yeah, of course you can come and stay because you do parkour. Um, and uh -huh. um, when you hear st stories of people within the community who have gone and stolen you know hundreds of dollar worth of camera equipment from people's houses when they slept on their couch and things like that, it makes you think ah oh, should we be a as immediately trusting of each other at, at times, um, but um, yeah, I think I think you raised some great points about about the history, about that experience, about wanting to preserve and protect the wonderful things mm -hmm. that we we have, um, and kind of just want to make sure that it's treated well. Um, yeah. On the flip side, though, in over a decade of the parkour passport being used around the world, we talk about the times the couple of times when it's been abused which in some ways is amazing mm. um, but let's move on from there because it's a fantastic discussion but we can probably go down these rabbit holes all day and i'm aware that it's probably quite late where you are <laughs> and i do want to get talking a little bit about parkour earth because it's you know quite important <laughs> do you want to give a little bit of a breakdown of what parkour earth is and what it is trying to do sure so most people will know that um uh parkour earth was established uh the catalyst of the establishment essentially was um fig figs uh announcement that they were gonna um make parkour their their new gymnastic discipline um and uh and it's sort of, while the parkour community at large has tried to set up various different, you know, there's a few different international federations that have been tried to, to, to be set up um, to help support the um, community internationally. None of them seem to, to stick. Um, they had uh, to draw on some of the language we've already talked about. They were, you know, they were, they were local. It was a very local group trying to set up something for the whole world. Um, which was harder to a uh, harder sell or a, or, or a more difficult um, process to go through, and so um, this was uh, six national federations who were in a position of uh, already in conversation, but having this experience of, hang on, you know, they're saying that we're unorganised and that we're, you know. Um, our spirit is only to be free, and that gymnastics is the best group to govern us. Surely we're already in charge of ourselves and our own nations. How, how can someone else come and say this um, if, if it's some national federations coming together, um, there's a bit more um, reason to be clear that this is an international thing that actually the, the community at large wants to look after its own interests. And um, that's essentially the, the vision um, of, of Parkour Earth is to um, enable the local actors to do what they want to do and not be forced into something that they don't um, want to do. Um, and I think it's it's important for me to say as well that 
although FIG was the, the catalyst to actually get some action in that regard, that the purpose of Parkour Earth is, is not to be um, the bastion against FIG and, it, and it's just there to fight FIG. And if um, FIG is successful in taking Parkour to the Olympics, if we ever get the Olympics again, um, that it's over and, and Parkour Earth is lost and that's the end of it. That's, that's not the ultimate um, vision and the goal of, um, um, uh, oh, yeah, of the organization. Okay. Um, so to provide a little bit of clarity, um, and I know there was a great discussion, uh, I think it was on Parkour Research prompted by Mark Turok just recently, surrounding governance and exactly what it is that the national bodies are trying to govern. Uh, so obviously we talk about parkour um, in two distinctly different terms. There's big P parkour, David Bell's practice, which was a global phenomenon in some manner. But we also talk about little P parkour, which is a an identifier for a group of disciplines developed by nine young men in the Parisian suburbs. Um, and of course, you also talk about parkour in this boundary object theory where it has a very wide, broad definition. Um, how does parkour earth try and what is parkour earth trying to govern if i draw so some uh, a, a, quite a bit of my thinking around um this and, and so i'm speaking as the ceo um the new ceo of parkour earth um, and so um there's the individual um board perspective and um as well, but if I draw particularly on my New Zealand parkour experience and our, and our setting up of, uh, of Parkour NZ is that we wanted to develop something that the community, the, the New Zealand community um, felt was their, their voice or you know, a helpful representation of, of who they were and where they wanted to go. And the initial intent of the New Zealand Association, it was the, besides the forum, it was the first thing that the community did together, basically, collectively, people from all over the country said, let's do this because we think it will provide us with some greater legitimacy. People will, might respect what we're doing a bit more, see more value in what we do, and not just think we're randoms jumping around um, on buildings. Um, and it, it fits something that is more recognizable to the New Zealand public um, and the sporting landscape. And so taking that national perspective into an international one, um, my own uh, thinking is very similar to that in terms of how do we establish something that can carry the collective vision of the global community in a way that is perhaps a bit more tangible or recognizable to the global, uh, to, to the world in terms of what they understand. Oh, sports have national sports federations. So um, where's the parkour one and, um, and what does the body look like? But one of, um, one of my published articles um, where I first talk about globalization is I talk about it was very clear from the start that although we're creating this framework, we, we're creating a national federation that's registered and you know is an official entity in, in New Zealand, 
we absolutely want it to be infused with and shaped by the actual culture and practice and people who do parkour and not by the system that we're adopting in order to spread it. And so um, from a parkour perspective as well, um, you know, it, this is certainly not the be all and end all of, of parkour earth or of parkour NZ for that matter, but one conceptualization of it is as a fence. So we want mm -hmm. to be able to ensure that people who are doing parkour, whether it's a grassroots practitioner, whether it's a federation, whether it's a business, whether it's a, a, a team, uh, an athlete, for example, that they get to explore it in the way that's rich and tangible to them, but sits within, uh, you know, is protected by someone who, um, an entity, a group, uh, an influence that isn't, hasn't been generated by the community itself. Um, and, you know, from a, from a FIG point of view, there's no, if the community at large said, hey, actually, we, we see a lot of value in working with gymnastics, then, then that's the direction that um, Parkworth could help facilitate that process. Um, but it's about ensuring that that voice is, um, is made more tangible and clear to the world, because um, I don't think it is because mm -hmm. of how, how localized um, the practices are. So one thing that really strikes me, there's loads of things that strike me about that. Um, May, um, with, would you say that within your, first of all, would you say within your language that in some ways you are creating a nothing to protect something that is parkour in the language of yeah, globalization? So that, that, that's, a, that's a title of one of the pieces in my, in the, in, in the thesis is, is using nothing to protect something. So okay. parkour, or, or, although you could say parkour is, is more nothing now, you know, it's it further toward to nothing than it was initially, um, that arguably parkour is more something say compared to gymnastics gymnastics mm -hmm. is a lot more generic and standardized and so for some people that makes it a lot more palatable um because it's easier for them to understand but it's a lot more universal and generic whereas parkour is a lot richer has a different kind of depth and so absolutely some kind of framework that is is more tangible and maybe understood by different powers and different parties um, but is serves is is there to serve the goals of of this thing that is is more something, mm -hmm. but also to be infused with what that is. Mm -hmm. Don't don't let the IOC or these existing cultures and and things to shape the culture. Do it the other way around. Use the parkour culture to shape this, and in turn, maybe what parkour earth becomes will actually change what the global sporting landscape can look like because it's 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 a total different way of, of establishing um the body because you know I, that's I'm one at, hell of a call to action you just made up there and i mean th this is yeah um i think <clears throat> absolutely you know i think when, when i think about parkour and i think about my experience that i've had in that compared to other sports you know i i played a lot of rugby before i got into parkour and i loved that um but nothing's quite captured me like parkour has and when I look at all these other sporting organizations I look at all these other bits and pieces it's like what are they doing why are they so disconnected from their communities or why are they so you know how has corruption become so rife within some of these groups why has money become so much more important than and what the practice 
that they actually are supposed to care about, all of those things. Um, you know, there's all sorts of negative things that can happen in Pākehā as well, but there's an opportunity here to be a part of awesome. changing what that landscape looks like. And there's so much turmoil happening all around the world at the moment with people trying to go, how can we do things differently because things have been done poorly for a long time in lots of different spheres. And this is, um, I always talk about, I get really fired up talking about this kind of stuff. Um, no, and this is really there's, good. There's some much bigger injustices in the world than what parkour is experiencing with gymnastics, for example. But okay. it's one of the things that pushes my buttons. Um, and um, and so it's a space that I want to, um, you know, if the things that I've learned and the things that I've studied can be of service to the community, which was the purpose of doing any parkour research in the first place, then I want to be able to use that. And yeah, pretty pretty big goal to try and change change that to fight against the IOC and the that kind of big global movement but I absolutely think that Paco has the opportunity to to be a part of that puzzle yeah like and for for me that's really important and let me kind of maybe break down for you a little bit about what you why what you just said um spoke very strongly to me one of the things that makes me very nervous about any sort of global action um is that little bit of the phrase which is and we will be whatever you want us to be which tells me that we are nothing and then it's sort of like and we are but so much of parkour and the parkour communities um they are value-led communities they don't share values necessarily but they hold often to their values very very strongly and so i don't think that we can would or should invest our time in organizations that don't have strong values because even if we don't totally share them but those ideas of authenticity and those ideas of um having considered the ethics not necessarily agreeing with everything but having considered the ethics and agreeing to move forward speaks very strongly to me whereas mm. we will be whatever you want us to be feels empty does that make sense and so sure. hearing you get fired up about really changing things like that makes me go all right where do i sign up that's the bit where i'm like <laughs> okay i'm in let's let's i mean i'm a radical so let's tear down the world let's build more authentic communities let's um dismantle globalization wherever we see it and create more local communities within your language um but no it's, it's really quite powerful and i like that um, but I realize that we are getting on a little bit and there is one more topic I really do want to kind of touch on with you. Um, so let's move to it if it's okay with you because um, Parker Earth's growth so far has really been around um, English speaking and European countries, um, specifically those ones that are quite well organized. Uh, and so to an outsider looking in, it looks overwhelmingly white, it looks overwhelmingly westernized. Um, its board member is um, entirely male right now. Yes. Um, yeah, which um, when we're trying to talk about diversity and inclusivity and community uh, isn't a particularly good look. How much of that so far has been necessity? How much of that has just been something you haven't been able to get around to? How are you grappling with that? And what do you intend to do to begin fixing this structural issue surrounding the company? Yeah, so the everything 
anyone who's been involved with a national body um, or any kind of organization, as soon as it gets bigger, it gets slower, um, which I find really frustrating um, um, because I'd love to make inroads. I mean, it doesn't help that, um, that I have a full-time job and I'm moonlighting as the CEO for a national and an international federation. Um, but for yeah, one thing, there's a whole bunch of factors, but yeah, things absolutely, they slow down and it takes longer um, to, to, to process the things that you want to process. Um, in the original establishment, so I was a part of the transitional board when we set up um, Park Earth and each of the members of the transitional board were members um, of the, um, the founding federations. Um, and so those of us that entered into that conversation, we, we just, we were um, male and, and white. And so we had the conversation and made it happen. Um, and as other federations are onboarded, as people begin to um, interact, it creates more opportunity for more and more people to, um, to, to step into the ring, so to speak, and put their hand up. So now that I'm CEO, there is no, uh, I mean, no one on the board represents their country. They now represent Parkour Earth and just happen to be from that country. Um, but, you know, there could be um, someone from New Zealand, example, from our board that could, you know, step up and put, say, actually, yes, I would, I would like to um, be on the board of Parkour Earth um, and, you know, some of our members who aren't <laughs> uh, white and males. And so we want to create that. And there's, you know, it's, there's a clause in our constitution that says that that's an aim, um, but it requires people from those boards to, 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 to want to. Um, mm -hmm. And for Park Earth to um, help support the national federations in, in suggesting that actually put, putting those names forward and saying, yeah, bring bring on um, greater diversity so that we can have those voices at the table. Um, and uh, in terms of the actual countries um, and, and wider network, um, that's a piece of the puzzle that um, we've been working on since I um, changed change roles um, and there's pieces of to do with the vision and to, to do with those connections and to, to do with those relationships and how Parkour can support um, that we've been working on heavily for the last couple of months and soon plan to be um, announcing some things and, and sending out some invitations that we're um, excited about um, but we've also been hesitant to we don't want to force anyone into membership and mm -hmm. we don't want to, we don't want to go around and colonize. <laughs> we don't want to take parkour earth and go and be like, you've got to do what we want to do. Um, we're yeah. trying to figure out actually, and this plays into this thing of how can you do things differently is national sporting federations represent their national members, but are they not supposed to represent the activity that they're trying to support? So how does parkour earth, uh, yes, support its members, but how does Parkour Earth actually support the grassroots practitioner? And so how does, um, how do we ensure and provide opportunity that is different to the way other national 
sports uh, international sports federations are set up and so we're mm -hmm. working through a lot of those different things how can the format be different so we can make it a lot easier um, for people to have their voice heard and to be connected and part of what's going on um, and to help um, have their locality and their local experience feed into the represented global yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously so, one of the issues around that is of course that so far you've had to be a national governing body in order to get involved in parkour Earth. so it is effectively a membership organization are you are you looking at ways in which i know that uspk isn't technically an international governing body right now but you've sort of brought them on in some manner are you looking at ways to be able to um lower the requirements so that you can bring more people in or change the requirements or change the way membership works so that you can onboard more groups or yeah that, that's a piece of the puzzle is um there's going to be countries in the world who don't have and there's lots of countries that don't have one and there's some countries that may never have one and there's some mm -hmm. countries that um the the legal situation in that country means that they have to be recognized by their national olympic committee because there is no other kind of head sports ministry or government agency that um, provides some kind of um, legitimacy for that group and most of those um, national olympic committees take their cues from the ioc so unless you're recognized by the ioc um, then you never get the recognition so there's all sorts of various nuances that have to be taken into account and we don't want to be pigeonholed by what is typical and standard of all these other organizations um because as but I on said, the flip side in order to be a representative at that level you do have to follow quite a lot of their rules depending on the country um so you know most of the countries involved at the moment um uh, well, so the UK, Finland, and New Zealand, we are all officially recognised as our um, as the national bodies for parkour in our in our in our countries, and so that's not something that could be taken away, for example. But there's the size of the community in the country, the 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 politics, the culture, all of those things will feed into whether they have ever have want a national body but that doesn't invalidate their voice or their community or their experience or all those kinds of things so how do you um we want to make those things valid and not have some kind of body national body as the standard and the only way um to have a voice um at an international level there's got to be something there's got to be a, a better way um and that's mm -hmm. something that we're trying to um makes me think of makes me think specifically of Germany um, because I know that talks amongst their organizations to build a national body have broken down a number of times because of the just the diversity of opinion of what parkour is in the country is so large that they just they basically can't sit down and agree on things um, so it makes, makes me think there's a lot of countries with large populations who probably don't have the same access within the model that you've created yeah and then when you look at other sporting organizations where a, a country hasn't been able to establish or set up or or have their body approved they they don't have a they don't have a voice or they don't have mm -hmm. as much access they get marginalized and so how do we prevent that kind of thing happening um so it's not it's not easy but again we're trying to st trying to stand for something that's 
um, more democratic, that people can, in, you know, have, you know, influence what this looks like, um, and um, yeah, think it's it's worth taking the time to try and make something that's quite special. Um, mm -hmm. If it if it ends up going in terms of my vision, um, yeah, shaking up the the international sporting landscape. And, um. Yeah, no, it, it feels like there's an awful lot of questions left to answer, and I suppose the only way to answer these is to get people fired up and engaged. So um, to sort of sum up, finalize, and pull everything together, um, if you are someone who is interested in parkour or wants to engage, wants to help wants to begin the good fight, where do they start? Where do they go? What do they do? Well, it's possible that there's people out there who actually want to directly contribute, whether you know they've got skills or talents or things that they're like, hey, I want to I want to help Parkour Earth develop stuff. It's possible that you know they might want to actually join the team, um, in which case they're most welcome to um, connect um, and just jump on the website and the email will come straight through to me. Um, and um, yeah, I'd love to, to love to know if people wanted to support in that kind of way. You know, if people are wanting to set up um, national bodies or understand what that, that journey looks like is something that we're very happy to help with um, and support. Um, the, um, as I said this, we shortly will, one of the pieces of work that we'll be working on the last couple of months um, is we'll be announcing um, and inviting people to participate essentially in a way where their local vision, their local experience can help shape what Parkour Earth's vision um, looks like. You know, at the moment, if you jump on the website, you, you can't go and see a strategic plan or a strategic approach. Um, and um, while we're not just openly saying, make it what you want it to be, as you said, a kind of a nothing empty thing that has no values um, and isn't kind of standing for something is before we go and kind of, we don't want to mandate something before we have wider input. Um, and so um, when these invitations and things go out for people to, to put their hands up, um, we want, yeah, we want people to engage and, and, and share with us what is, what does it mean to you? Um, and what could this be for you at, you know, at various different levels um, for the, for the grassroots practitioner, for the business, for the, uh, the parkour influencer, for the, um, uh, for the national body, for the, you know, all these different groups have lots of different valuable perspectives that we want to hear um, and we want to draw from to, to create um, and, and push this forward. It's, it's, so, yeah. um, it's always interesting. Yeah, it's always interesting because because what what you've just said is in some ways so similar to what your PhD thesis was, which was you set up a platform and then said, "Hey, what do you think about these things?" And if you can do that for the entire parkour community through Parkour Earth, you'll probably get so much information, and then you can do the same sort of I analysis can write and information. Book about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can try. You probably don't have enough time, but uh... no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, thank you so much for your time and thank you for sitting down and dealing with my difficult questions and uh, starting to think again about um, all of these lovely academic manners. I know that in New Zealand, you actually have a life unlike here in Scotland where we're still in lockdown. So I appreciate your time and I appreciate all these things. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or say 
on the podcast just to the people watching before we finish off um one just th thank you for inviting me i was just reflecting um uh, that i really enjoyed jumping back into some of the topics and pieces of my thesis you know i um I've been, I, I'm really enjoying the work that I'm doing for Sport Waikato, um, this, which is a regional sports trust. And we're trying to broadly, excuse me, improve the well-being of, of young people at, uh, at primary schools. Um, and my role is sort of a, a wraparound school support to help connect the schools with outside providers or with their community better to ensure that kids have great opportunities. Um, and so, um, while I'm not- So you do the, the same thing as me in many ways. I'm one of those providers right. to those schools working with those people here in Scotland. Yeah, so I'm not directly I'm not directly saying all of the schools should go and do parkour, but I but I'm you know certainly influenced by actually play, taking risks, all these things that have value should you know people should do that. But and I really like that work and I think it's really important. But I get stuck in that local space and then forget about how much I love the research and love the opportunity to go and study the thing. You know, ask a question, find some answers, and then push it back out for people to explore and grapple with, and find ways to make meaning of that and improve um, their life or their experience and what's happening around them. So um, I appreciated the the invitation because it helped remind me how much I love doing this research and why it matters to me, um, and why I, wherever I am trying to straddle. Um, you know, if I, if I was working in an academic space, if I was lecturing and all that kind of stuff, then I'd be wanting to do very tangible grassroots research that actually is meaningful to people and not stuck in the ivory tower. And in the same way, if I'm on the ground doing work with people, I want to make sure that it, there's, it's evidence-based and evidence-led and mm -hmm. as you can take the information from that and use it to go bigger. Um, so um, I think in many ways you sound, you sound similar to my approach, which is I want to be the guy that talks to people in the ivory tower and talks to people in the grassroots and connects what's going on in those worlds. Yeah. Um, but what, what I love about that is actually maybe sometime in the future, we need to sit down and talk about risk and play in the playground because I'd, we'd probably also have a great chat about that. And it's so different <laughs> from what we just talked about. Um, but I'm going to let you go because I'm pretty sure it's very late over in New Zealand. Thank you so much for your time, Damien. Um, and we're going to finish the live stream there.